The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're going to see Finland taking care of its share, but of course, of, of course trying to ask others to do the same, just because that's the goal that has been agreed upon between NATO allies. And it's only normal that Finland will be asking for others to do the same thing, what we are also doing. But then we also get to the other aspect, which is interesting that Finland, even though it takes its national defense seriously, you're not looking at a nation of warmongers. I think you're looking at a country that is more of a, uh, in the sense of verify and then trust mentality, that Finns use their defense force as a last resort, but also as a strategic signal to, in this case, Russia, that it's not really worth it. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast for April 6th, 2023. Finland is in NATO. This week, the ratification was made complete and the country joined the North Atlantic Alliance. To talk through how it got there, I sat down with two research fellows at the Finnish Institute for International Affairs in Helsinki. One is Henry Van Hannen, who has also served as a foreign policy advisor to the National Coalition Party, which recently won the most seats in the Finnish parliament and is in the process of forming a government. And we spoke with Minna Aulander, who is a research fellow also at FIIA, and like Henry, has recently written for Lawfare and been on the podcast previously to talk about Finnish security issues. We talked about the long road to get to NATO membership for Finland. We talked about what Finland brings to NATO and what NATO brings to Finland. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 6th. Finland joins NATO. Henry and Mina, I feel like we're getting the band back together because in May of last year, uh, we spoke uh, along with one of our colleagues uh, from Sweden about the application of Finland to NATO and the application of Sweden to NATO. And I wanted to talk with both of you again, because now we are allies. Congratulations to us and to you uh, as full NATO members. Uh, Sweden is not there yet, but we're going to focus on the the Finnish side of things. Uh, Henry, back in that conversation last year, we were talking about the prospects for membership uh, what it would mean strategically, politically, militarily, but also the time frame. 
And the three of us weren't quite sure what was going to happen. We, we knew that Hungary and Turkey were going to be some level of obstacle, but we didn't quite know what it meant. As I recall, I was more optimistic, thinking that this would move relatively quickly. What do you recall about your thinking from April of last year through that conversation up to today? Has this played out at each phase the way that you thought it would, or have you been surprised with some of the developments? Well, I personally tried to divide the process in my mind into sort of three acts. The first act being securing the path to NATO, making sure that you have the support of your allies and potentially the security guarantees from from the moment you start preparing for the application and when you send it. And then you enter into act two, which is the actual uh, ratification process where you have to the sort of gray zone that we were afraid that would turn out to be somehow harmful or dangerous because we were not sure how Russia would react. Now we have seen later on that Russia was basically busy occupied, uh, occupying other countries. Right. So that, that, that was the sort of the end of act two now that we have seen just uh, as Finland joined NATO. And then we enter into act three, which is actually implementing NATO membership and actually being a NATO member. Now, certainly this act two, I think we were quite optimistic about getting very close by the end of last year, potentially to 28 or 29, uh, depending on what sort of a problem would Hungary turn out to be. Mm-hmm. Well, now we saw that it actually turned out to be uh, perhaps not, not a bigger problem than we thought, but potentially more linked to Turkish decision. And for me, when I decided to visit both uh, Ankara and Budapest uh, in, in February this year, it was really revealed to me in a different way that there's a clear and strong link between Turkey and Hungary on this decision. And I think the estimation for me was that when we start hearing that Hungary will ratify, that most likely means Turkey has also made a decision to move on. And I think this is the exact same choreograph that we're going to see in terms of the Swedish application as well in the the near future. I do want to come back to your experiences in Hungary and Turkey recently. But uh, Mina, same question to you. Because in our conversation that we had on the podcast here a few months ago, I recall that in a rare event, someone was more skeptical than than I was. And and you were skeptical that Turkey, at least, um, but possibly even Hungary, would move on Finland's NATO uh, invitation before the elections and before the results were known and a new Finnish government was formed. And here we are, we've, we've had the election. Um, as we record this, the new government is in the process of forming, one presumes. But we have Finland in NATO. So talk about your thoughts from last spring through the year and into this year, uh, whether you think that you were surprised at various stages up to and including Turkey turning around relatively quickly there at the end to approve uh, the membership. Um, yeah, I think Henry's uh, analysis was quite good about these different acts or stages of the process. And uh, for my part, I have to say that at first I was somewhat surprised, actually, that uh, Erdogan gave in on the initial objections before the Madrid summit surprisingly quickly and kind of easily. And and I had expected him to maybe even drag that on for a bit longer. But then, like, Finanasun actually did manage to get the get the um, invitee stages already in, at the Madrid summit. And um, in a way, I can totally understand that, that 
At that point, it was uh, definitely Turkey's best bet to make sure that terrorism stays on NATO's agenda. There was a real danger that it would be all about Russia uh, at the Madrid summit. And, and it, was a, it was a very important summit because uh, the new strategy concept was uh, decided on there. So I can, I can understand from a strategic perspective that uh, this was, a, this was a, a very good bargaining chip in that sense uh, for, for Turkey. Um, and then um, I think after that, and especially with the incredible uh, unprecedented speed with which uh, other NATO member states ratified Finland and Sweden's membership, then I uh, made the mistake of underestimating Turkey's ability to withstand pressure from allies. Mm-hmm. And I got kind of disillusioned later in the fall when I was talking to NATO officials and, and they said like, oh, uh, don't you worry that they, they they do this all the time so 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 they can they can keep going like this and and then that really kind of made me realize that probably it's really not so much about uh, the perceptions of other allies because I think that this process was very much for Turkey about presenting itself as this kind of important and independent ally and within NATO like underlining its its important strategic position and so on so it even from that perspective, it even made certain sense to to just like oppose everyone else and be like, yes, but this is our position and it must be respected. And then, uh, as as you correctly remembered, I was I was quite pessimistic um, when when we last spoke about this uh, because um, in the beginning of the year it was quite a frustrating moment. It looked like. Uh, there was a big setback in the process uh, due to the um, um, incidents in protests in, in uh, Sweden that very much angered Erdogan on a probably very personal level, and that can't be underestimated um, in this case, unfortunately. And at that point, I didn't really see, I had the feeling that the process was kind of really set back by, by weeks, uh, because then at uh, then the, the trilateral talks were paused for a while and so on. But I think what was key here and why Finland uh, in the end now went ahead and also managed to secure the ratifications from both Hungary and Turkey. So the key was to to agree on separating the, the processes. And that was the most difficult question from the Finnish perspective, like whether we should or not go for that. And, and that was something that Erdogan actually indicated um, when Niinistö visited him in Ankara to get this final, uh, you know, uh, promise from president to president that the ratification will be done. Uh, so Erdogan had indicated that they were just waiting for Finland to signal that uh, we are willing to go ahead without Sweden. And although it was not, and Anemist actually emphasized that it was not done on the official level, Finland never said like, yes, we want to go without Sweden. But it was enough to just do the, our own part of the ratification, the, the parliamentary vote and everything, and then say like, well, no, it's not in our hands anymore. So that was obviously the signal. I think that in the end, the solution was something of a compromise. Like um, we didn't get to join together hand in hand as we wished um, with Sweden, but hopefully Sweden will follow in not too distant future. And, and then we will at least get to get to uh, join right after each other, if not together and, and then that would be maybe an acceptable compromise for both because then also Turkey can say or Erdogan can say okay we managed to separate them they had to kind of uh, oblige to our wishes and um, yeah well at least uh, that that could be the perspective. Yes uh, Henry back to uh, Budapest and Ankara in your your travels there 
I'm really curious how you feel about the conversations you had and the mood you had, because on the one hand, the obstinance, if you will, of Hungary and Turkey compared to the other members of the alliance does raise some questions. And it does leave, as we say, a bad taste in one's mouth about the the delay in the approvals. On the other hand, they have approved Finland's membership and they are full allies. And the Finnish government and people are committed to the defense of Turkey and Hungary now as part of this alliance relationship. And one does not want to hold grudges when one is in such a relationship. So how do you how do you balance that out, having been in these discussions and spoken with people that probably both frustrated you and gave you some faith that this was going to work out? I think the visit in early February to both of these countries came at an interesting time. It was, uh, like Minna mentioned, it was just after the Quran burning incidents and the halting of the trilateral discussions between Finland, Sweden, and, and Turkey. And of course, for that reason, the visits actually gained some <laughs> domestic interest as well and some uh, attention back home. The idea was to travel to these countries, knowing that, of course, we have a process that's still ongoing, but also trying to understand that these are two future allies that perhaps see certain things a bit differently than we in Finland and probably broader in NATO, within NATO. And trying to get a better understanding of the strategic thinking in these countries was the purpose, also the sort of important purpose behind the trip. And for me, it, it sort of gave the impression that even though most of us here in Northern Europe and Western Europe, especially in, in, in Central, Eastern and Northern European countries, are very focused on the threat coming from Russia and how to manage that threat. It's not the same case for, for Turkey and not even Hungary. I think these are two countries that are combined with a foreign policy approach that certainly doesn't try to hide the fact that they are maximizing their or trying to maximize their national interest. And even that, even in cases when that might come at the expense of others, for example, Hungary doesn't send arms to Ukraine, but other other uh, NATO countries are doing that. Right. And, and for me, for example, I, I learned that for the Hungarians, they, their foreign policy, they, they perceive it through Berlin, Moscow, the Western Balkans and, and, and Ankara. So they, they are, that, that's what, where their focus points lie on. And for me, this, this siding with Erdogan by Orban, it seems like that this is not a case about objecting NATO enlargement per se. And it's the same goes to Turkey. This was about trying to gain something out of this. We, of course, knew that there was the feud on EU funds between the EU Commission and, and, and Hungary. But still, I mean, it seems that, that Orban here is tried to make and is still trying to with Sweden to do a favor for for Erdogan, which he can then later on try to get back. He definitely Hungary is the junior partner in this delay and has been in this delay process. Uh, I think that this this whole order of things has been set by Turkey. Once Turkey decides to move, then Ankara, uh, then Hungary follows suit. Now, now in Turkey, it was it was interesting. It sort of gave you the understanding that. In Finland, we have basically one existential threat, and that's Russia. You're, you're otherwise surrounded by neighboring friendly countries. But then with the case of Turkey, you have to look at that environment a bit differently. There's, there's you know, Iran, there's Syria, 
there's the Mediterranean, there's the Black Sea and all these issues, and then you have Russia. So it's a it's a bit different approach and different strategic culture. And I think it's it's just it's a good thing to try to understand that. It doesn't completely explain the delay. I think for the Turks it seemed a bit more principled, the objection that they really wanted us to understand that you must take the issues of terrorism and PKK seriously and how they operate and potentially finance actors through Finland. But then it's it, it, it seemed to be more of a case that this is going to be solved eventually in discussions between NATO and Turkey and NATO and, and Washington, D.C., even though we know that the U.S. doesn't want to take a formal role of being a sort of mediator in this process. We do know that it that definitely has an important role to play. Mm-hmm. But one last important point was that the mood in Turkey when, when, when we visited in the in early weeks of, of February was that Finland is not a problem anymore, that we are ready to ratify Finland if Finland gives us the signal. And it was interesting that when we came back to Finland and gave some interviews to domestic media, we got some backlash for saying these things. But it turned out that a, <laughs> just a month later on, this is exactly what happened. So, I mean, this was the mood in Turkey already in the early early months of this year. The terrorism concerns are, of course, real, and they are a real security problem in in Turkey. And as Henry just uh, described, the security environment is very different than ours up here with with Russia as the single threat. And in a way, it makes it easier for the, let's say, northern flank countries to unite and uh, rally around, let's say, the NATO flag now, um, uh, because if, because we have this very clear threat environment and threat perception of, of the one threat that is very prevalent. And obviously, the whole southern flank uh, threat environment is much more diffuse. This is not only the case for Turkey, but also France, Italy, and other uh, um, southern European NATO allies. But I think that we have to also see this, and, and, and I think this is a mistake we made in uh, Finland and especially Sweden, that we took this way too personally, uh, because this is not the first time that Turkey has done this. It was the same case, for example, with the Baltic defense plans in 2019 and 20, and it was it was about Syria. It had nothing to do with the Baltic states or any objections that Turkey could have conceivably had against their defense plans. So, so it was again linked to Turkey's different security interests than the ones at stake in the process. So, so they just have this like habit and kind of uh, this, this negotiation strategy of leveraging like unrelated issues. And uh, just like Hungary as well tried to try to do this issue linkage between the EU and NATO, it didn't work out um, because Hungary just doesn't have the same position as Turkey has. They don't have. Uh, the same um, leverage as, as as Turkey has within NATO and also in within the EU, Tur- uh, Hungary is increasingly isolated with its blockage of also uh, Ukraine aid and so on. But I think that this is also important to keep in mind that while like Sweden kind of provided the perfect ground to project these real security concerns on, uh, it was still probably much more about something else. And now. I think that the, that the earthquake in Turkey played quite a big role in how this came about now because the Turkish people simply lost interest absolutely understandably on the Finnish and Swedish NATO membership. Like that was just simply not relevant for them in a situation where like this catastrophic earthquake just happened in their country. And, and then like Erdogan lost some of the 
value that this issue had had previously, uh, also with with view to the negotiation, uh, the, the the elections coming up. And I think that um, probably it was all the time part of this game that there will be the elections, and this is like one thing that that he can he can use as a as a card um, in the election uh, going going up to the election. So. I think um, Turkey is a very uh, complicated case in the sense that that nothing is as straightforward as as uh, we would like to take it. And I think on the Finnish part, this is this was also like for both Finland and Sweden, it was a big, maybe even culture shock in the sense that this is a very different way of playing hardball in a sense uh, with hard security like that what we are used to. For Sweden, it's hard because they have had this long normative foreign policy tradition. And for Finland, we tend to be very sincere and take um, agreements very seriously and promises very seriously. So so then like this kind of backpedaling on promises and then shifting goalposts and everything, this is very hard for both Finland and Sweden to navigate. So I think there were like many uh, kind of different strains in this whole game. And it's, it's not over yet, of course. The elections in Turkey are a big... Uh, question mark what will happen like because Erdogan isn't like so secure in his position right now and what will that mean then if he loses the election these are very difficult questions uh, considering Sweden's uh, accession prospects very true um, I'd like to talk about the implications for Finland of NATO membership and also the implications mm-hmm. for NATO of Finland's membership um, and I'd like to get thoughts from both of you and I'll use as a structure for this, The framework that was set up, Mina, in the article that uh, you wrote, the comment on the Finnish Institute of International Affairs site with some of your colleagues talking about Finland's NATO accession, where you wrote that at least uh, four significant implications were present for Finnish security and defense policy with NATO membership. Um, I'll use that framework, but I'll turn to Henry first to talk about the first two of these significant implications that that you wrote about and then get you to weigh in as well. One of them is the fact that Finland has to learn to become a genuine collective defense actor, not focused solely on resilience and national defense, but also on the collective defense of the enlarged alliance. And as a parallel to that, that Finland will significantly deepen its existing military partnerships. Henry, from your perspective, uh, is Finland poised to do well on both of these fronts relatively soon? I would like to think so, because if you if you take it for starter, certain things, you look at the the capabilities that we have in all domains, the modernized capabilities. You look at Finland spending the two percent GDP target set by NATO in the Wales summit. And then you look at Finland's location as an Arctic and, and Baltic country, uh, Baltic Sea country. That sort of puts Finland in a position where it's actually potentially a significant uh, influencer within NATO that it will have contribution. And if it pulls its strings quite well, it's actually in a very good position to advance its own interests that also support NATO interest. And I think in this sense, you mean that we, we, we can talk about Finland as sort of a potentially taking the role of a coach within NATO that as an example of encouraging others to invest in defense as well, to participate in burden sharing, because we're not, I mean, with or without, without Trump, the discussion on burden sharing, it's always been there and it will continue to be there as well. And especially in circumstances where we see 
in Russia that is very different compared to the Wales Summit 2014. Now we see a Russia that's launching a full-scale war against its neighbor. Mm-hmm. This definitely I mean, creates some requirements for, for NATO countries to do more on defense. And I think Finland is going to be one of the countries that is going to ask others to do the same that we are also doing. Because, you know, we don't want to see a scenario where people will say, well, now Finland, you got admitted to NATO in a historically fast pace. Now you can take care of, you know, the rest of the uh, countries also in this region. That's not going to be uh, what, what, what I think Finland desires. What Finland would like to see is, is efficient command structures for regional security in, in Northern Europe, and also to have a specialization between these countries, definitely looking at Germany here right now as, as a Baltic Sea country, to contribute more and also to just do what is promised and, and, and what is agreed upon. And I think this is a role that's coming to suit Finland quite well. I mean, in the EU, Finland is not potentially a major actor but within nato finland actually can have that position if it plays its cards right and on the other other thing that you just mentioned the second point about regional cooperation i think it's it's more or less evident that finland will definitely continue a very close bilateral trilateral defense cooperation with sweden with norway with the baltic countries including the brits and also the americans in a suitable way because we see that there is, I mean, we can't escape the fact that there's also some uncertainty around the commitment of 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 uh, NATO allies in the next 10, 15, 20 years. We don't know the state of the alliance will be. Of course, it is in the interest of Finland to pursue uh, defense policy that, that supports NATO's ability to execute collective security in this region and in a way that also supports Finnish national int- security interests because you, you you cannot forget that we are a border state. If a crisis comes around where Finland would need assistance or need to coordinate efforts together with allies, we don't have days or uh, you know weeks to think about this. I mean, it could be a matter of hours for a border state. Since day one, when the conflict starts, you're going to, I mean, I hate to say this, but you're going to see people killed. And this makes it a vital interest for Finland to make sure that the arrangements through NATO actually function in all scenarios. And this, I think, requires efficient regional cooperation. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime identity theft? 
stalking or even violence. I used to think this was silly. And then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. I will point out here before I get your take on the same question, Mina, that the the framework has been laid for this kind of collective defense actor role and the deepening military partnerships because of the developments that Mina, you wrote about for Lawfare uh, this week about the expanded Nordic cooperation over the past few years on many military and security fronts. And then of course, even back to last fall in October when the Finnish and Swedish officials for the first time took part in a NATO defense ministers meeting as observers. So 
there, there's already the institution building going on even before formal membership. So Mina, I'll ask you the same question on those those two elements of the implications for Finnish security and defense policy from joining NATO. What thoughts do you have on the collective defense defensive actor role and on the military partnership side of things? So this is quite a significant change for Finland, especially in terms of kind of mentality and and this kind of doctrine, because we have had this very strongly territorial defense focused doctrine, which is of course about our own national security. And it's great because it's it's a rare commodity in Europe these days. Uh, so the fact that Finland actually never went for this this expeditionary force model uh, in the beginning of the 2000s, by the way, which was also partially uh, a result of Finland not being a NATO ally at that time. And that was also why NATO wasn't so much considered to be, or NATO membership wasn't so much considered to be in Finland's interest, for example, in the, the early 2000s, because NATO had so strongly this uh, orientation and focus on uh, out-of-area crisis management operations. And, and that was that requires different kind of capabilities than, than Finland has. Of course, Finland has also been participating in crisis uh, crisis management operations like Afghanistan and 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 other out of area uh, operations. But still, the focus has in Finland always been on the territorial defense. And then, like going from this thinking that has really uh, persisted for eighty years, that we have to always be at all times uh, kind of ready to defend ourselves on our own and we can't expect any help it's a huge like 180 degrees change to then become part of a larger alliance become like uh, start thinking of like one for all and all for one and 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 this is this raises the question of uh, the level of political ambition in finland because this can go many ways like finland has the potential to become as as henry uh, outlined a, a very like important ally and and also a very uh, influential ally um, but it also depends on how uh, in terms of shaping Finnish NATO policy where the goals are set well Finland mostly focus on its own territory and and making sure that we still that that we are like you know keeping our promise of like not outsourcing it uh, to to nato and like which is um, very self evident if you ask anyone in finland uh but in a way now that we have become an ally that can't be our only offer our only offer as uh, as a nato member can't be that we continue to protect our own territory and and the eastern border because then others can ask like well why did we then want to have this border in the first place um so and then there's a the question like the second tier of uh, ambition level uh, could be maybe focusing very strongly on the regional security and the regional security uh, um, arrangements and becoming a very important regional actor, which Finland is very likely to be and already is. And, and that is kind of an, an easy one, especially because we already have all these regional cooperation frameworks and, and arrangements in place. But then the question is like, what what then like what after that like will we actually widen our horizon to view at least the even further european territory like what if like of course for us the the, the russia contingency is is the one that we are most interested in as nato ally but what if it doesn't materialize in our region in the baltic sea region what if it materializes in the black sea region and to be honest because we have such good um uh conditions here 
or uh, good, good possibilities to develop a very firm and robust uh, deterrence and defense posture in this region, which will stabilize the region, make it more secure, and 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 thus also a Russian um, aggression in this region less likely. But the Black Sea region is already quite fragile, quite unstable. It offers a perfect ground for Russia to to take the next steps if uh, as soon as it has the capability or capacity uh, from Ukraine. So so this is, I think, an interesting question. Uh, like, will we be able to think further outside our own regional box about these things? Of course, the NATO 360 degrees is is even uh, even a different level again, but. This is something, and then there might be some expectations, of course, from uh, our southern flank allies, um, especially Turkey, of course, now, that we will continue to take also Turkish and, and southern flank allies' security concerns seriously and, and show some presence there, maybe, and, and, and show that we understand and that we are also prepared to to do that, and we are not only here, like, we, we didn't only join NATO in our pure self-interest, which may very well be the case, but to at least demonstrate that we understand what we joined. So I think um, this is something that remains to be seen, like which ambition level the Finnish NATO policy will take. Thank you. I'd like to briefly also touch on the other two elements of the framework that you wrote about. And these build on the shift that traditionally successive governments in Finland have emphasize the importance of maintaining dialogue with Moscow, but now Finland's Russia policy will increasingly be deterrence-based. And one element of that being, of course, that Finland will be covered by the alliance's nuclear umbrella. So Henry, what are your thoughts about that shift from a long, long-term long pattern of communication between the senior most levels of the government, but shifting to more of a deterrence psychology when it comes to Russia in particular? I think we have to look at the longer arc of things when it comes to Finland and Russia and the relationship that has been unfolding for a little over 100 years now since Finland gained its independence in 1917. I think we see a clear pattern that is colored by the fact that this is a, re- this is a very imbalanced relationship between Finland and Russia. The other one is a at least a regional superpower, and the other one is a small state. And I think uh, former Finnish foreign minister, Mr. Timo Soini, once said that Finland is the size of itself in Russian foreign policy. But I coined the phrase as saying that the problem is that Russia is the size of itself in, in Finnish foreign policy. And this is the imbalance. And I think if you look at Finnish history, you know whether it be Finland declaring independence at a moment when Russia was weak after the First World War in 1917, or when Finland pursued to have this border state alliance in the 1930s in the pre-Second World War years, and uh, aligning with Germany to fend off uh, to the Soviets and gain back the lost territories in the Second World War, uh, opting for neutrality in order to keep the Soviets at an arm's length and avoiding becoming a complete satellite for the Soviet Union, and then quickly applying for the European Union after the Soviet Union collapsed and sort of entered the West. So I would say that NATO f- sort of falls in line with this tradition of Finland trying to find a balance, trying to sort of uh, narrow down the, the gap between uh, the security gap that has been always around in the relationship between Russia and Finland. And in this sense, it perhaps represents a shift, but I would say it's more of a getting a new way of managing uh, 
this imbalance between Russia and Finland, trying to manage the potential threat by Russia to Finland. Because, uh, you know, nothing will fundamentally change in the sense that if you look at the Finnish defense forces, I don't think they have exercised anything else except the potential threat coming from Russia. I mean, this has always been the sort of basic understanding in Finland. This was the same case after the Cold War. Finland didn't sort of completely buy into the peace dividend thinking, unlike, for example, Sweden, and has maintained its conscription system. It has maintained a credible national defense. So these issues sort of come from the collective historical memory of the Finns. And in this sense, of course, I mean, Finns reflect how Russians behave. And if Russia is attacking its neighboring countries, then Finland will react and trying to sort of uh, gain and maximize its own security. It's actually it's exactly the same words that the president used when Finland joined NATO in the ceremony, that every country tries to maximize their own security. And this is the case with Finland. And with this, this knowledge on Russia, I think it's, for now, it's going to be on the shelf. You know, Finland has for since the current president, Mr. Niinistö, has been in office since 2012, has been able to have this very close dialogue on the highest levels of, of Russian power with basically meeting Putin twice a year, usually at least once in Moscow and once in Helsinki, and then, you know, various other phone calls and meetings elsewhere on other platforms. So this knowledge is not going to disappear. I think it's going to be of, of, you know, use to NATO. It's going to be a benefit to NATO to have a NATO ally that has experience and also potentially has access to Russia when needed. And, you know, at some point after this war ends, and it will end, we're going to have to sit down with the Russians. And at that point, the Finnish access and, you know, the Finnish know-how can be of use. We do know that even at this very moment, you know, there's still embassy-level contacts. There's the long border between Finland and Russia, which needs to be managed regardless of, of the current sort of general mood in the relationship. So, so there are still some existing formats. But I would also like to point out one important fact that, you know, usually when you say that a country has a close relationship with Russia and has dialogue with Putin, that sort of has a bad sound, you know, in it. It has a bad connotation, but in this case, I, I'll leave you with the example of if Finland would have had this this relationship and it, it would have had sort of some sort of corruption or shadow elements to it, then I don't think that the Americans would have sold Finland JASM missiles back in 2012 before any other NATO allies. So, I mean, it just sort of represents the nature of this. It's about keeping an eye on your neighbor for your own sake and then potentially telling your allies what your neighbor thinks. <laughs> That's right. And for listeners who are interested in these points about the long time understanding of Russia and the high level relationship with Russia, I will point people to Henry's article on lawfare from a few months ago in January on Finland in 2023, which uh, offers some background on this. Mina, your your take on this. What about the psychological and societal shift from this pattern to one of deterrence um, as part of this alliance relationship? Um, there has been, a, like Henry, I think, pointed it out quite well that there has been a shift, but also some continuity, and it, it's not quite as sudden as it looks from the outside. So the shift has been going on for a longer time. And, and of course, already, like 2014, the annexation of Crimea, like the first invasion of Ukraine, was already a, a significant moment, and that's... Uh, triggered this process in Finland of starting to build the even closer um, cooperation with NATO and other 
bilateral um, and 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 also in multilateral form, formats with regional and and US and UK um, partners. So um, I think that what really changed quite fundamentally as the result of Russia's war of aggression uh, against Ukraine is that Finns have seen to an unprecedented extent the brutality uh, that that Russia is willing to um, you know um, use against Ukrainian civilians and also maybe because I think especially in contrast with the let's say uh, the, the three Baltic states our southern neighbors the links to Russia have been closer on the societal level in the sense that more people speak Russian in the Baltic states than in Finland, follow Russian media and society and developments closer than, than in Finland. There simply has not been that high level of interest on the societal uh, level in like whatever happens in Russia. Finland has always been more, or at least since the Cold War, more like westward uh, oriented, like more... Uh, more interested in what happens in Sweden than in Russia and so on. Like so, although we have had always this, like as Henry described, this uh, like also security and pra- pragmatic interest in knowing what's going on with with Russia. It has not been so much on the societal level, and I think that has made maybe Finns like more willing to give, let's say, ordinary Russians the benefit of doubt than, for example, in the Baltic states who have been, in a way, uh, let's say, more anti-Russian already before this invasion. And I think that is quite a, like like the shock of the brutality of this invasion, even if it hasn't been exactly a surprise necessary, but, but still a shock. Um, I think that has changed the way how, how Finnish people view Russia as well. And I think that is quite, a, quite an important change. And also because Finland used to have kind of this approach like speak softly but carry a big stick so meaning that the official rhetoric about Russia was quite cautious and you wouldn't like officially address the threat that uh, Russia poses although you were always will always be prepared for uh, that that possibility so I think now maybe what what is said and what is done matches more in Finland in a, in a way that the, the also the public rhetoric on the highest level um, and, and this kind of openly addressing Russia as a threat that is quite a significant change and of course there was this like this showed just like very clearly and and that was remarkable how quickly the Finnish society and people understood it uh, because in the end the NATO process was very much from like bottom up um, the public opinion changed first and then politics followed. So it just made very clear that uh, we do need to maximize our deterrence because we cannot rely on Russia's good will or good faith. Uh, because what Henry also mentioned that there is this fundamental imbalance in the relationship. It's it's not a relationship between equals. Um, and although Finland, just like any other neighboring country of Russia, has a vital interest in peaceful relations, but Russia does not view it necessarily the same way. It views everything in this grand scheme of uh, great power competition that it sees itself in with the US uh, and NATO and so on. And and then if it suits Russia then or, or doesn't suit Russia, then under the bus Finland goes. So in that sense, um, I think that was the, the very 
clear thing. Like Finland really tried everything the good way, like tried to have as 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 good and cooperative uh, neighborly relations as possible. But then it just kind of became clear last year that this is currently not an option, and we need to. Uh, be absolutely sure that Russia knows very exactly where the border between Finland and Russia is. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to close with thoughts from both of you on the other side of this, which is what Finland brings to NATO. And my my first guess at this is that most, certainly most American listeners, but many others don't understand that this really is an asset to the alliance, ranging from Finland's very strong artillery corps to its robust intelligence and Air Force capabilities, the latter, uh, including the recent purchase of 64 F-35As, as well as the strong and already largely interoperable with NATO presence and deployed capabilities in the Baltic Sea itself. So Henry and then Mina, I'd like to hear both of you make the case that Finland is making NATO stronger. And in what ways do you think this will become most clear? Well, I can start with a list of things, some of the things that you just mentioned, but first to say you have a wartime strength of 280,000, a reserve up to 900,000. You have a modernized Air Force, as you mentioned, 64 F-35s coming in, in in a couple of years, starting from 2026 and fully operationally capable in 2030. Then you have just modernized your Navy vessels. You have the Western European's largest artillery you have a country that has over 80% of willingness to defend their country regardless of the outcome. Just to give you sort of an idea and the listeners that you're getting in a country that takes its national defense seriously, has never really dropped the ball on the subject, and will continue to take its national defense seriously. A country that doesn't ask you to do things for them. You're going to see Finland taking care of its share, but of course, of, of course, trying to ask others to do the same, just because that's the goal that has been agreed upon between NATO allies. And it's only normal that Finland will be asking for others to do the same thing, what, what we are also doing. But then we also get to the other aspect, which is interesting that Finland, even though it takes its national defense seriously, you're not looking at a nation of warmongers. I think you're looking at a country that is more of a, uh, in the sense of verify and then trust mentality that Finns use their defense force as a last resort, but also as a strategic signal to, in this case, Russia, that it's not really worth it. And then what you're looking at else is the, if you look at where Finland is located, as a Baltic Sea and Arctic country. And if you look at some of the war games that, for example, Rand played right after Russia's first invasion of Ukraine in 2014, I think it quite clearly indicated that if NATO were to defend its allies in the Baltic Sea, mainly the Baltic countries, in an efficient way, it would most likely need the airspace, the maritime space, the land of, of Finland and Sweden to do that. So you're basically when you involve Finland and Sweden, you actually tilt the balance in favor of NATO so that it actually raises the threshold for this region to become a flashpoint for any future crisis. So if you're looking at a war, a hypothetical war between NATO and Russia, it most likely will not start from Northern Europe if we are able to execute the planning and exercising of the defense 
of NATO in this part of the region. I think this itself increases stability for all of Europe. And if Europe is stable, that's also relieving for the Americans. That is one heck of a case. Uh, (laughs) Mina, uh, let's close out with your take on this. What, in your mind, does Finland bring to NATO? All of what was said already, uh, very, very good overview by Henry. Um, and, and I would maybe really emphasize this point that at the Madrid summit last uh, July, NATO pledged to defend all allied territory, um, every inch of allied territory at all times. That's a bold pledge. Uh, and uh, actually, NATO would be quite hard pressed to deliver on that, especially in the Baltic region, uh, without Finland and Sweden in the alliance. And um, I would like to emphasize also that it's both Finland and Sweden. And, and it's very crucial that also Sweden becomes member. Because if you look at the map, uh, Swedish territory uh, is so crucial like as, as like kind of connecting the whole region, like from the Arctic to, uh, down to the Southern Baltic Sea and, and especially for the uh, Southern uh, Baltic, um, Baltic states, Lithuania and Latvia, Swedish territory is extremely uh, important for security of supply and strategic depth for, of, of their defense. So, so that should be also emphasized. And then on the Finnish side, I would maybe also like to uh, just add this uh, Finnish comprehensive security concept. Uh, in Finland, we have an extremely well-functioning civil-military cooperation. And, and that is actually also quite a, quite a rare... Um, this is a common Nordic concept of like how to view security, because especially like Finland, Sweden and Norway all have large territories, but small populations. And, and that necessitates this kind of civil-military cooperation in order to organize uh, defense in an effective way. So I think that that will be also an interesting aspect uh, that, that Finland brings on the table to NATO, especially now that uh, we need more of this more comprehensive integrated security thinking, because Russia is not only a military threat, but also a cyber and, and hybrid threat in, in many ways. So understanding how all this plays together, not only the three traditional domains, air, land and sea, but also newer domains such as space and cyber. Um, so, so these are some things that um, definitely Finland can also uh, contribute to. And um, yeah, I think that is um, actually one of the very interesting parts of Finland's, uh, Finland's doctrine that the military defense is actually only the tip of the iceberg also, although that is a very important part of it. Excellent, excellent point. And in the tradition in this conversation of giving shout outs to previous publications, I'll give one more, which is on your points about the importance of incorporating Sweden, both for Finnish defense and for uh, full alliance interoperability, especially in the case of a crisis. I'll, I'll point people, Mina, to your article from earlier this week on lawfare, incomplete without Sweden. And with that, I will thank both of you for for joining us for this conversation. It won't be the last, and I'm grateful that you found the time to come on. Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Remember to get ad-free versions of this and some other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. Remember to also listen to our other podcasts, Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. And check out our written work, as always, at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Your audio engineer this episode was me. Our music is performed 
as always, by Sophia Yan. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.